friends. So you've been with me over the last three or four weeks, and each sermon text has provided an opportunity for a pastor to provide a significant part of his work. Uh, I have, in one sermon, expressed what the Word said to give encouragement that God is never absent. I have also tried to guard you with the truth that the holiness of God is not something to be taken lightly. I've also given you some instruction on the name of the Lord and what it means and the significance of it. I've equipped you. And in this text, it's designed to challenge you. You've heard it said at times that pastors have to be teaching the whole counsel of God. I want to encourage you as listeners that you would be listening to the whole counsel of God. It is a two-way responsibility as pastor and also you as listener to avail yourself consistently to listen to the Word of God from your pastor, to hear with ears of hearing. And in this text in particular, we hear words of warning for hearts, a heart that is going in a hardened direction. And that doesn't mean necessarily that I have to adapt my tone to be incredibly heavy. However, I do think it's important to recognize that as you come consistently to hear the Word of God taught, over time you will hear the whole counsel of God. And so it's important to adapt your personal schedules to try to be present when the Word of God is taught, and I encourage you to do so. Maybe you've heard a joke that begins with a priest, a rabbi, and a minister all walk into... I'll stop there. What does that structure of a joke do for you? Three produces anticipation, doesn't it? You see parallel movement and you're waiting for the moral or the punchline of the joke and this structure is very similar in a lot of good storytelling, and Hebrew storytelling also has this. It creates anticipation for the listener. You're ready to, to, to find out what's, what's going to happen at the end of the story. And occasionally in good Hebrew storytelling, you see three parallel movements, and then there's a plus one. The plus one is going to come next Sunday, but I want you to see the movement here in the three this morning as a response to God's command. God commanded Moses to go to Egypt, and it was not a message that he wanted to hear. And there's a threefold resistance that occurs as Moses hears this and God, Yahweh, is incredibly patient with him. Probably more patient than you or I would be with Moses if he were standing before us. Nevertheless, God is not really looking for an argument from Moses. He's been told to go. Just as much as Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, and instead, Jonah got in a boat 
and ended up in a whale. Well, here, Moses is hearing the same instruction, arise, go to Egypt. God has given Moses a sign of a burning bush. He's given him the sacred name. He's given him the guarantee of his presence. And he's not looking for an argument now. God's actually not looking for arguments from us either. And Moses argues with God three times. And in this process, we see, and I want you to take away this morning, that whenever we argue with God, we are hardening our hearts. And that's our personal responsibility. It's not God, it's us. We are the ones hardening our hearts. So let me just give you a three, just a quick overview of these arguments and objections, then we're going to walk through them more intentionally. But the first objection comes in verse 1, and Moses here, he's, he's saying, look, they're not going to believe me, they're not going to listen to my voice. And uh, Moses, though, had been given something spectacular. He was given the name of Yahweh. No other human being had been privileged with such a rich relationship with their Creator. Moses, in spite of receiving signs that would go with him, objects a second time. In verse 10, he objects on the basis of his own personal capacity. He, he, he doesn't see his, this going anywhere because he is slow to speak. And after this objection is answered by God, God says in verse 12 a second time. In verse 12, he says, now therefore... Go! It's incredible that after having been told twice to go, that Moses still resists. And the last instance here in verse, um, verse 13 says, he just kind of, it all just collapses, and Moses says, I really don't want to go. It's time for you, Lord, to find someone else. Can you imagine standing there and saying these things? And then in verse 14, it says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother Levite? I know that he can speak well. This still doesn't get him off the hook. He still is required to obey. And as we walk through this, I want you to take note and ask yourself personally, why is it that we argue with God? Why do we argue with plain scriptural instruction? When we hear things very plainly, and I know looking at the Old Testament, you might say, well, I don't really understand what's going on. But Jesus has spoken in the New Testament very clearly. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, but God, don't you know what they've done to me? What part of go or do don't we understand? Now, let's consider the, carefully Moses' three objections and consider the ways in which we may also harden our hearts towards God's Word. And, and, and with, a, with an, a view to warning, we want to take seriously... Anytime God's word is communicated directly to us, 
that we not cover it up, we not resist it, but that we obey it. In the first instance, in verse 1, you see Moses claiming that he lacks authority. I would call it a moral authority. And I'm going to argue that this is not based on anything other than he has a lack of faith in God's Word. Verses 1 through 9, a longer section. We'll probably spend most of our time this morning in this first, but it leads quite naturally to the other two, and you'll be able to see and understand how this is progressing. But first, I want you to notice that there is a lack of faith in God's Word, which leads to his insecurity and sense of lack of authority. Moses is equipped with the Word of God. He has everything he needs. He has been given a very clear message. It's not like it's not squishy. It's like it's very clear. Go to Egypt, gather the elders, and tell them that now Yahweh is acting and moving and going to bring you out of Egypt. And, and God even tells them, tells Moses, look, the people are going to believe you. The king, although he's going to resist you, he's going to be hardened. The Egyptians will be plagued. And then deliverance will occur, and finally, you'll loot the Egyptians, and it's all going to come together for you. It was very clear in God's mind, and God very clearly laid it out to Moses, and it could be very clear to us, too, if we would but trust and obey what we've been told. Moses counters and says, no, but they won't believe. No, but God had said that they would believe him. And Moses says, no, 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 they won't believe. Is it possible that Moses doesn't see what God sees because he's refusing to believe God's word? I would say yes. And I would also say that when we believe God's word, our minds will then be able to visualize what God has promised. For example, when we disbelieve God's word, darkness heaps upon our souls, and we can't see the future. We can't see the happiness that's been promised on the other side of a trial that will be there. We enter a shadow land of disbelief. And Moses is in this shadow land of disbelief, just like, just like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, who was intent to follow God's word and leave the city of destruction. If you recall the story of John Bunyan, the Pilgrim's Progress, in Bunyan's dream, he sees a man with a book in hand and a burden on his back. And when he reads the Bible, it causes him to, to be in distress and increases the weight of the burden upon his back. And his family hears him talking and mumbling these, these verses, and they don't believe him, and they don't believe God's word. And yet he's very sensitive to God's word, but he doesn't know what to do. He's not clear what he can do to relieve himself of this, and he meets a man called Evangelist who tells him to flee from the wrath to come. 
evangelist points with his finger to the distant horizon and says, look, can you see? Can you see that distant light in the distance? That light, it's beside the wicked gate. Keep that light before you and go to the gate, and there you will find your way to the cross, and you will have freedom and deliverance. And his wife began to see that he's being influenced, and Christian begins to run towards this light, and his children begin to run beside him and his wife and call upon him to return back. And he plugs his ears and he begins to cry out, Life! Life! Eternal life! His neighbors mock him. And two others, though, join him, one whose name is Obstinate. And as they go, the way gets a little bit harder, and Obstinate says, I'm not going any further. I can, I, I actually... Don't, I don't have any sense of joy in what you're seeing, Christian, as Christian begins to talk about the happiness that he's going to see in the celestial city, and he's, he stops following. And the second is pliable. As these names go, pliable means that he's influenced by his externals. And he continues walking with Christian and asking more, Christian, more questions. And Christian begins to visualize all that God is promising in the Word. He begins to visualize the crowns, the streets of gold, the cherubim, the seraphim, seraphim and, and as he's thinking about all of these things that God has talked about in His Word, all of a sudden they find themselves falling into a pit. Falling into a pit. And as they are struggling in this pit, pliable calls out to Christian and says, now what do you see? And Christian says, I don't know now. I, I can only see this. And Pliable becomes discouraged and says, I don't want anything of what you have. I'm leaving. And because he can't see, he puts disbelief in the word. And Christian, as he struggles, finds that there's a man that comes to him by the name of help and helps him back up and sets him on his feet so that he can see again the vision in the future. And I share this as an illustration that so many of us are like Christian. We start out with a vision of what God has told us in his word. And when difficulties come, our eyes drops and we lose sight and we are tempted to doubt and disbelieve the truth of God's word. Some of us, when trouble comes, even abandon the path because they were never converted in the first place. Why do we not see what God sees? Why is it that Christian did not see what the Word of God told him? Honestly, everything in God's Word is as clear as day if we put faith and trust in it. I think that many of us struggle with the obedience because in the very basic, we don't believe that when God says that we will be in a place of greater happiness, if we reconcile with our enemy. It seems absolutely impossible that there could be any happiness that could come out of restoring a relationship. And disbelief to God's word, God's word says, no, it will be better for you if you would obey. 
And instead, we, our hearts get filled with gloom and we get discouraged because at the root, we're not obeying. We're not obeying because we're not believing. We're not believing that God promises us victory on the other side of obedience. We don't believe that if we obey the word that we will find the happiness that we so desire. And so we get so we're content with just status quo and we never move forward and we never resolve issues. The reality is we have no authority to claim that we are a follower of Christ if we're not willing to obey what he tells us to do. And moral authority requires us to obey God's word. Moses needs to obey God's word. We need to obey God's word. Moses needs to obey from the heart. And if anyone's going to listen to Moses, Moses had better listen to God. God's very gracious, and he provides three signs for, for Moses. And what are these signs? We see in verse 2 to 5, we see a sign of a staff that turns to a serpent and then back into a staff. We also see a hand that turns leprous and then is healed again. Verses 8 through 9, we also see there's, if he's needing a third sign, that the water will turn to blood that he pours onto the ground from the Nile. And scattered throughout this several times, God gives explanation for the purposes of these signs. In verse 5, he says um, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, has appeared to you. And then in verse 8 and 9, three additional times, he gives explanation that if they don't believe this one, then maybe they'll believe that one, and then if they're further lacking belief, then, that, then maybe they'll accept the third. I don't know about you, but every time I have heard this passage preached from my youth, I have always heard pastors teach this text as some grounds for God just being able to use whatever's in your hand. Have you ever heard that? I don't actually think that's what's the point that we're supposed to draw from this. Well, that's true. God can use whatever's in your hand to accomplish what he wants. But here, I believe there's something even more significant going on. I believe that the staff here is a communication that God's power is going with him wherever he will go. A staff is mobile. A staff is used to walk along a path. The burning bush that, that is consumed but not consumed, you have a snake, you have a staff that turns to a snake and is not a snake, it's a staff. These things go together. The burning bush is stationary, it's going to stay there, but God will go with Moses wherever he will go. Does Moses even believe that? I believe this is the fundamental issue that's at stake here. Moses is not going to be obedient to God's word unless he comes to the grips with the truth that God exists and he will go with him wherever he will go. And I also believe that's true for us as Christians and followers of Christ. Some of us have only a God who exists at the cross when they were five years old. That was the God who saved them. But you don't have a God who's continuing on with you. 
I think it's critically important that every Christian follower look at the Word of God and recognize if God gives you direction, forgive your enemies, and you're unwilling to do so, you don't believe. You don't believe that He will be with you and not forsake you no matter what. As painful as it will be to go to an individual and accept and extend forgiveness, you can't see the happiness on the other side because you don't really believe that God is with you and He will not forsake you. How do you expect the unbelieving world to believe you as a messenger if you're not willing to put into practice the very message that he has commissioned us with. The gospel of forgiveness and restoration is what we are called as Christians to communicate. How can we communicate that if we don't believe it? And obedience to the Word of God builds moral authority to lead. I want to talk for a moment to those who might be aspiring to leadership, leading in a church or leading in a home. You've got to put into practice the commands of Scripture if you expect others to follow your lead. We have to put into practice the commands to love our enemies and to pray for them. Those are not optional. Those are necessary for our following of Christ. Moses is not in a good place. He's arguing with God. He's saying, I don't really want to do this. But he's throwing up objections. They're like smoke screens. So God is patient. He dismantles one argument. He proceeds to another so that he might, in the end, get to the root. And so we see God very patiently listening to Moses. In verse 10, he says, Moses says to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither have I, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses is arguing on the basis of his own personal capacity, but I believe that he is showing that he has a distrust in God's sovereignty. Moses says, look, you created me this way. You made me so that I have this speech impediment and I can't talk. I'm slow to speak. I have a heavy tongue. Yahweh, he knew all of this. Why did God know this already? Because God had made him that way. And Moses perceived his lack of capacity as some sort of like reason that he could then distrust God's wisdom to make him that way. What does God mean when he says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I'm going to be honest that these verses make people very uneasy with the Old Testament. And there is this temptation to unhitch the Old Testament from the New because of verses like this. 
I don't think that we should be unhitching the Old Testament. I think rather we should change our viewpoint of the Old Testament. We ought to change our stance to trust God when He either allows or directs the courses of nature in ways that we don't understand. Again, God is not a philosophical problem to unravel. He's a complex personality just like you and like me. But unlike you and me, our God has an infinite store of wisdom that we don't have. And it is entirely in his right to create a world where evil is a possibility. And the only way that you or I understand good is because we understand bad. Holiness, in its essence, includes its opposite. For there to be holiness, there necessarily has to be its opposite. And so when God created the heavens and the earth, and when he said that he was good, he was also saying at the same time, there is potential here for bad. And God knew good, and he knew evil from the beginning, and we didn't. And we were tempted with this knowledge by Satan. What if God in his sovereignty permits someone to be born blind? In fact, what if he even wills it to occur? Is God evil? Jesus and his disciples were walking through Jerusalem, and they came across a man who was blind from his birth. And they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's not something that's easy to hear. And I want to be sensitive to the truth that this may be difficult for us to appreciate and understand because we're finite. We know that God is good and he holds all wisdom unto himself. He doesn't always tell us why he does what he does. But we may run the risk of distrusting God's sovereignty and allow it to make excuses for our own lack of obedience to God's Word. What is clear has been revealed, and what is clear is our responsibility to obey. And some people will say, you know, I can't love that person because they have badly hurt me. Who's in charge? Or you might say, well, I'm shy. I'm not a natural leader. I can't do, I can't speak and say things. What you're in fact saying is you distrust God's sovereignty to create you the way you are. Paul struggled with this because somewhere along the line, he had some difficulty with his eyes. We don't know exactly what they were. But God, in his sovereignty, allowed that to occur. But Paul said that he understood that God's strength was being revealed in his own weakness. And so he heard these words from God, My, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We are all weak people. We are all created differently, uniquely, in the image of God. But we all 
have a responsibility to trust a sovereign God. The one who says, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you must speak. This is what God says to Moses in Exodus 4, verse 12. It is remarkable to me. God said, go once. He's saying, go twice. It's almost as if God says, don't make me count to three. There is a lack of desire here that's under the surface and that's at root. And I believe it's because he has a lack of love for the glory of God. Verses 13 to 17, we hear these words from God's voice. Verse 13, we hear the objection first, Oh Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart, and you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you both will do. Time has run out for Moses. There's really there's no reason to delay now. And he refuses. Now, I've noticed, now I'm only 45, but the others who have been beyond me have noticed even, there is this human tendency to put off what we don't enjoy. Uh, I know Abby Newbon's not here, but um, her father was visiting earlier this spring, and uh, when he was visiting, he was taught, he's a pastor, his, her father's a pastor in Florida, and he was telling me about this man in his church that uh, would often say to him, I'll do anything you can get me to do. Did you hear how that went? It's not more of, it was a joke. But all joking aside, some of us have run out of excuses. You know what you ought to do. You know that you ought to be involved in the life of your church. You know that you ought to be baptized. You know that you ought to put yourself into loving accountability with a church through membership. You know that you should be participating in discipleship. You know that you should be forgiving and reconciling but you refuse. Why? Notice that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. What is the anger of the Lord? I would say that this is not an attribute of God's nature as much as it is a function of his love for his own glory. He loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And proceeding from them both is the essence of the Holy Spirit. And each one of them guard the glory, the exclusive holiness 
and they are happy in that relationship. And God gives to others a, an opportunity to know what God knows. It's a free gift, and it comes with responsibility that if you disrespect the Son of God who calls you into relationship with Him, what you are doing is you are heaping coals of fire upon yourself. Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's like a paradox, isn't it? That's a paradox. On the one hand, you see the importance of, of responding to the Son's invitation to have a relationship with you, but if we reject it and we don't move into that, what we're doing is we're heaping coals of fire upon ourselves. And yet, at the same time, this could be relieved quite easily. We could simply repent and believe and move towards Him. As it says there, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Outside of Christ, there is no salvation. Salvation is only found in Christ. And every time we argue with God, we are displaying a lack of desire to be intimate and to uphold the glory of God as the Son and the Spirit and the Father knows and experiences it. Every time we argue with God, our hearts get harder, and there is the potential that God's wrath may burn upon us. Every time we hear the Spirit's call, but we refuse to respond, God's wrath mounts. Now, if you're truly a son or daughter of the Lord Jesus, of our Heavenly Father, God's wrath has a different intention. It's intended to burn away the sin. It's intended to heal. It's intended to restore. Because there's something deep down inside of us that's causing us to resist God, and it has to be removed. Because He wants us in fellowship with Him. But if you're not a child of God and you continually spurn his voice and say, I, I just, I'm not going to go there. I hear it, but I'm content with what I'm doing. What you're going to find is that your heart will grow harder and harder and harder. It may be that one day you will perish in the way. And you will find that you were never, ever a child of God to begin with. Over the last 10 to 15 years of my more adult awareness, I've noticed perhaps a good trend and trajectory towards, towards grace. We need grace. We need God's kindness extended towards us. And I understand that. But God's grace is not cheap. He gives us the gift of knowledge in order that we be changed 
by that knowledge. He wants us to be holy as He is holy. When we avoid doing the Scriptures because we sense, oh, I, I sense this is just simply a duty for me, and I just can't seem to do it out of a love for Him, some of us are content to say, well, I just won't do it because I don't have the desire. I think that's dangerous. Anytime you sense within your heart, I don't want to because I don't have a, it's not happy for me to do this, you ought to be asking yourself the question, why? Why don't I want to do this? Yes, it's not healthy to be doing Christian life as a duty over a long period of time. But if, on the other hand, you react against the duty that is clear in Scripture, and you say, well, I'm not going to do it because I'm not finding delight, God's not going to be happy with that either. We also have to ask ourselves, what is it that I'm loving more than I am finding love in God? Is it possible that I have set up an, another idol in my home? Have I set up an idol above my hearth? Has this idol attracted me? Am I loving my busyness and my 401 you know, financial stuff? What do we love more? What do I need to let go of so that I can love Christ, that I can obey Him and follow Him? Well, when we identify that thing, we need to do the hard work of saying, this idol has to be removed from my heart. I need to repent of this, and I need to submit myself to the Word of God and obey. I also need to ask God to plant within my heart a greater love for Him. We need to ask ourselves every time we argue with God, why? Because if we don't, our hearts are going to get harder and harder and harder. See why it's important to come more than just one Sunday? Because next Sunday, you might hear something that relieves the pressure. You need the whole counsel of God. You need to hear all of God's Word. It's essential for your life. It is essential for your growth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time in the Word. I pray, dear Lord, that we would allow you to, to be first in our hearts and lives that we would humble ourselves, that we would, we would not allow ourselves to grow hard. But Lord, that your word and your spirit would break down any resistance that we might feel towards you or what you have told us to do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand. We're going to sing um, the song called Be Thou My Vision. Appropriate way to conclude the service this morning.
Blessed are those who take refuge in God. I hope you were challenged and also encouraged and reminded of how important it is as we go throughout our day that we remember Christ be with us. Actually, as Pastor Banks preached that, it reminded me of the St. Patrick's breastplate prayer. Many of you are familiar with I won't go through the whole thing because it's kind of long, but there's a portion that really emphasizes within us the value of Christ's presence and how much it saturates every aspect. So I wanted to read this short portion and then close with a benediction from Romans 8. It says, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, and Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, and Christ when I arise. Oh, that we would be familiar with his ever-saturating presence in our lives, and that that might go with us, and we might be able to face whatever trial, whatever challenge that is before us today and through this week. Let's close in Romans 8. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I trust you'll be with us next week to worship, and I trust you have a blessed Lord's Day. Thank you.